This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. BBQ. I am Len Aberman, joined with my incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. Hey, Len. What's going on? You know, we start the show with one of the best Rocky songs, Eye of the Tiger. However, and I'll explain why, it is not actually the Rocky II theme song. It is actually the Rocky III theme song. Yes, it is. But the reason that I used it is because this is part two, and I like this better than the Rocky Two theme song. Gotcha. This is part two, exactly. See, there's a <laughs> method to my madness. Emphasis on madness. <laughs> this is part two of Tom Gilbert and Paulie G. And for those of you who have been waiting, and I know that a lot of you have been anxiously awaiting this. This is part two, the sequel. And just like The Godfather, this one may even be better than the <laughs> So, Jeff, yes. you know we've got a lot to get to, but yes. I know that you have something that's on your mind and has been on your mind, and I think you need to get it off. Yes, I want to get something off my chest. A lot of talk has been with the designated hitter, and you know what my feelings for it, but I want to be, I want to answer some of these people. I want to be honest and clear about what, when it comes to the designated hitter in the National League. And hopefully, this will be the last time I address it. Since the rule came into the American League in 1973, I have been against it. I've always believed that the same nine players on offense and defense. The rule was put in place to increase offense in the American League and to keep all the players in the game by letting them only hit and not play the field. And of course, to increase attendance. Okay, I get it and I understand. Fast forward 50 years. The rule is not used as intended. Now it is a strategic position to give a day off from playing the field. Yes, I know there are one or two players who are exclusively a DH, but for the most part, the position, if that's what you want to call it, has morphed into something else. Now the call is to bring it to the National League. As much as I was against it, in today's baseball, it just makes sense. Baseball has evolved, and in this case, 
it has not evolved for the better. Today, the late inning strategy has been taken out when a pitcher goes five or six innings or reaches 100 pitchers. Therefore, the pitcher doesn't even bat late in games, which means the managers do not have to make a decision on to make the double switch, bunt, pinch it, or to let the pitcher keep pitching because he's pitching so well. Since none of the late inning strategy is in the game anymore, what is the point? Some will say DH is to protect pitchers from getting injured, batting, or running the bases. Oh, please. This rarely happens. Pitchers get hurt pitching. When a rare occurrence happens and a pitcher gets hurt on a base, it's, it's magnified only because it is very rare. I know people will bring up Ting Ming Wong or Master Hero Tanaka, but then again, in the history of the game, this is very rare. So I say, let's bring the DH in the National League because of these reasons, and let's just move on. I'm not going to speak about it anymore. Thank you, Len. Wow. <laughs> well, all right. So, Jeff, that was very eloquently said, but there is one thing that I know is going to happen. What? You will definitely bring this topic up again. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it just... it's going to be a rule eventually, and then it's done. But let's get back to what this podcast is all about, baseball history, and we're going to talk with Tom Gilbert. Yes, we are. But before we do, Jeff, why don't you tell everyone who just listened to you talk about the DH, and you know that everybody has an opinion, and we want to hear from you. Let them know how to get in touch with us. We love to hear from you. Go right ahead. Well, you can give us a call. Our phone number is 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Leave a comment on Facebook. Twitter, we're at Baseball and BBQ. We're on YouTube, Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, we're at Baseball and Barbecue. Barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. There is no way that they can't find us. <laughs> that, we could be in the witness protection program and they would be able to find us. That's right. So, Tom Gilbert, part two. Yes, and we pick it up where Tom is talking about a player named James White Davis. Enjoy. Speaking of the color line, who was James White Davis? And what was his role in the, in the banning of African-American players? Yeah, so he's a member of the Knickerbockers and a really important person in amateur baseball, especially early amateur baseball. He was a center fielder for the Knickerbockers in their heyday in the early and mid-1850s and played till he was pretty old uh, in his 40s. You, you remember Rick Down, the hitting coach? Mm-hmm. And he would talk about the role of hips in, in, in batting, and he said, if you can't dance, you can't hit, was one of his sayings. And White Davis, James White Davis was always winning dance contests. <laughs> Might have had something to do with his hitting ability, but he was a good-hitting, good defensive center fielder, influential person in the National Baseball Association that was the governing body the Knickerbockers had a lot of prestige. So in 1866, in 1867, a black club in Philadelphia applies for entrance in the, govern, in the National Association via the, the Pennsylvania Pythians, State Association. Right? They're called the Pythians. Pythians, right. And the situation was interesting because there were African-American clubs going way back, farther than we know. And games between white and black clubs were under the radar. We don't, there may not have been any. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that 
a lot of the baseball players of that time, uh, as we said, they have different racial views. Some of them are quite liberal. Some of them are active abolitionists. And yet there are no integrated clubs. And that's kind of an interesting question of why. And part of it is, so, most of it is social reasons that white and black people live so separately that you were forming a baseball club. It was people you knew, the unions of Morrisania, who were named their club because they were abolitionists and Republicans, uh, they didn't know any black people. It's basically that simple. When the subject of integration comes up, it's about having black clubs play white clubs, not integrating clubs. So whether we're going to allow that. Well, the Pythians kind of called baseball's bluff because amateur baseball says baseball is for gentlemen and they have uh, admission standards and you have to be a respectable person. And these Pythians are doctors, lawyers, and professionals. And they're saying, why, why can't we be in this? And then they see an opportunity because the president of the Pennsylvania State Association is a guy named Hicks Hayhurst, who's a Quaker and an abolitionist and racial liberal, and they think they might have some friends there. And they show up at the convention, apply for membership, and there's a lot of seat shifting and throat clearing. Part of it is that baseball is worried that in the aftermath of the Civil War, they're not going to be able to expand to the South. They're too identified with the North. And the last thing they want to do is integrate for political reasons. Well, Davis and a guy named Dr. William Bell are sent down from New York to put an end to this. And that results in the color line being drawn formally. They, they wrote a statement which was passed by the convention if you have any black players on your club, you are not allowed in organized baseball. And that's stood until, you know, the later 1870s and 80s. Right. So, you know, you can read a lot about James White Davis and histories of early baseball, and they, they seem to skip that part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a shame. Absolutely. The book is great. People should have to, if you want to know about baseball, how, how some of the, the great stories that I thought we knew, apparently uh, exposed, but uh, it was it's fascinating well, the, the, reading. The truth is, in my opinion, a lot more interesting than the stories. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's full of fascinating people. And, and I think that, you know, no matter how much you know about baseball history, there's going to be a lot of surprises in there. I, can, I, I respect, you know, we have so many authors on and the amount of research that they do, I always, you know, the respect we have for them is immense. And this book isn't even, some of these books some of these authors, you know, at least they have some more, you know, they know some of the things before they begin. There is really nothing in this book that somebody could say, oh, I knew that, I knew that. Everything in it, first of all, disproves whatever you know. Whatever you think you know, you don't know. And the research that you did is just amazing for this. How yeah, thank you. You know, yeah. uh, John, John Thorne, the Major League Baseball historian, said there's 100 <laughs> stories in there that you've never heard. And what you said is very, very... On, the, on point, you know, to me, it's exciting to learn that what I always thought wasn't true and to find out the real story. I mean, that's what turns me on as a historian. And, you know, some people don't feel that way. There are a lot of people that think you should leave the myths alone and the myths are there for a reason. And, you know, I want to know the truth. And I think, you know, I, the, the way I wrote the book, I was, I'm trying to draw the reader into the search for the truth because, you know, it, it's not 100% knowable. It's a long time ago. If you go about it the right way, you can you can find out uh, a lot more about what happened and why. And it's a hell of an interesting story, and not just about baseball. You know, you're going to find out about America. Right. It's I, a very I, different country. And that's what I was going to bring up. I have a couple more questions. Sure. Uh, but definitely get definitely get the book. Then we want to get onto a little bit of barbecue with you. <laughs> why not? <laughs> In this era of, of where the book takes place, smack in the middle is Civil War. Mm-hmm. 
baseball is kind of played between the prisoners and, and uh, the soldiers. Talk about how, how, how the Civil War... Right. So uh, I mentioned before that 1854, 1855, baseball's really nowhere. It's, it's incredibly re- uh, localized, played by maybe 100 people. Well, 15 years later, everyone's calling it the national pastime, and they're playing it coast to coast and in every state. I mean, that's, it's, I've read a lot of history books that didn't seem to grasp how quickly it happened. I mean, that's part of the story. Right. Not only that, it wasn't just 15 years. It was 15 years in which we took four years plus out to fight a civil war. So baseball's kind of on the back burner. A lot of the clubs stopped playing, but a lot of the players are joining the army. And 1861, 80, 90% of the people that play baseball live in New York State or the metropolitan area. We know a lot about certain units that are full of New Yorkers who have lots of baseball players in them. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you've been in the service, but there's a lot of downtime. And there's a lot of time to play games and sports. You know, Spalding wrote a book, The First History of Baseball, and he argued that the Civil War had helped spread baseball, and even to the South. Now, I'll agree with him only halfway there, because uh, it's a tough thing to judge, because there's no real coverage, there's no real championships there's just ad hoc games being played between units and we know a lot about individual games that happened and it's sort of anecdotal but if you look at the big picture and what happened after the civil after the war the growth of the game after the war here's what i'll say the, the, i'm convinced that the game spread the war spread baseball to the midwest and the west and it did so because troops from wisconsin and missouri and Ohio and Illinois are interacting with New Yorkers. That's the main factor. There's a picture which is on my cover. It's a game played in the prison camp in 1862. All officers, by the way, because they didn't allow enlisted men to play. Mm-hmm. And I, f- I have a diary of one of the, of the second basemen on one of the teams who describes how they played every day. A couple of interesting things about the picture. Um, one of the sides is almost all New Yorkers. The other side is everybody else, mm-hmm. which tells you about the sort of balance of power. So prison camps didn't spread the war outside the walls didn't spread the game outside the walls that just wasn't going to happen there was no interaction between the community and the prisoners if you look at that picture which is a beautiful uh it's based on a drawing by one of the prisoners who was an artist named otto bedecker each one is an individual portrait of someone he knows he makes a point of having the confederates ignoring the game the guards are playing crafts behind home plate with their back to the action there's other ones standing in the outfield not paying attention it's kind of a funny picture. If you get a high-res image of it, there's a lot of interesting, funny things in there. So, but after the game, there's an explosion of baseball interest in what we call the Midwest. And I think that's because of the mixing. There was a little bit of kind of interaction between the home front and the battlefield because it was so close. You know, if you were in a Brooklyn unit, say a militia, I mean a state National Guard unit, which is a common thing for a baseball player, you might be away for three months 90 days or, you know, uh, nine months. And you could actually come home on a weekend or a leave and pitch, which happened. Uh, there was a championship game pitched by a guy who had been in uniform fighting less than a week earlier, Joe Sprague of the Eckfords. Now, baseball had already spread to certain parts of the South already, like New Orleans, because it was the cotton business went through New York. Mm-hmm. Right. But there was a big problem after the war. It, it ties into this integration question we talked about. Baseball wants to be a national sport, and it needs to expand into the South, but it's associated with the North. And Southerners, even Southern baseball players, didn't want to join the National Baseball Organization. There was a lot of bad feeling. 
it basically, uh, some of the hard feelings had to soften. It took a few generations, not to mention the economic factors. So I'm not going to agree with Spalding that it spread, it made the game a national sport, but it definitely spread it from the Northeast to the West, mm-hmm. what they call the West, which we call the Midwest. And, and how, how important was the, the railroads and baseball in spreading spreading the very important, very important yeah very important in fact that's understanding the railroads is a big key a key to understanding how baseball spread and why and you can follow the early baseball clubs in a lot of parts of america and they're following the development of railway lines and for two reasons you know ideas and and all kinds of things spread along transportation lines but the railroads are being built by in many cases by new yorkers so one of the things i did when i was doing the research is i'm going to places like chicago or ontario or Buffalo, or St. Louis, and saying, who formed the first baseball clubs? We have game accounts, we have names on them, but we don't know who they are. And it takes a lot of work to identify these people, and you can't identify all of them, but you begin to build a picture. And I was surprised the first three or four times that I found out that it's mostly New Yorkers, and people who worked in transportation and communication. You get printers, journalists, a lot of railroad people. The typical situation is that the first club in any place, in Detroit, in Chicago, it's going to be railway people, most of them are New Yorkers. They're bringing the game with them. And it's kind of fitting because baseball and the railroads are knitting the country together. One of the purposes of baseball is national unification. That's something people really ought to know, you know, how important the railroads was in spreading the game. Yeah, um, it, it helps explain it. And it, in, there are places where, in Ontario, the first games are on a line you can draw between uh, Buffalo and Detroit. It's the Great Western Railway. They're in places, small towns like Woodstock and Hamilton. They're not in Toronto and Montreal. And railroad stops, yeah. Yeah. Len mentioned James Creighton before, and you had in your book a kind of, we're Met fans, and it was kind of Met connection that you you mentioned. His nephew was Dr. James Parks, who was a Met team. Oh, what a great story that was. Yeah, so I've I've spent a lot of time before I wrote this book on James Creighton. Now, I live in Brooklyn, and he's buried in Greenwood Cemetery. And I do tours of Greenwood Cemetery for all the baseball graves, and there are quite a few of them. Creighton's is really beautiful, and I recommend anyone visit it. So I spend a lot of time talking about Creighton right by his graveside. Uh, it's a baseball-themed grave that's marvelous, uh, decorated with baseball equipment and upside-down bats instead of upside-down torches. It's quite beautiful. Well, that grave was damaged in 1928. It lost this little pedestal on top of it that had a baseball on it. And over the years, I was working with the cemetery to try to raise the money to restore it. One of the ways you do this is you look for descendants. You know, the cemetery couldn't afford it. It was going to cost about $10,000 get the marble recarved. And over the years, I would pick up this project and try to find descendants. And James Creighton never married or had children, but his brother, who was a veteran of the Civil War, did. And I start tracing it generation by generation whenever I have time to do this. And I get down to his nephew, James Creighton Parks, who was a stockbroker living in New Jersey in the 1930s. And then he has a grandson with the same name, James Creighton Parks. And I look at his birth date. It's in the 30s. And I'm thinking, maybe he's around. I start looking for him, and I find his obituary. He died in 1999. You might, have, you might remember him if you're a Mets fan. He was the yeah. Mets team doctor, Jim Parks. Yep. Yeah, he, he operated on my father's knee. Oh, well, about that. <laughs> and he was actually a great athlete, and he has a few things in common with not a great athlete, but he played college football, and he played tennis. He didn't play baseball. I always wondered why. 
And his daughter became the chief marketing officer for Major League Baseball under the previous regime. She's not there now, but she was there recently. Yeah, I was um, just going to mention that as well, how his, so, his lineage, you know, all throughout the game. It's so interesting. And finally, so I wasn't getting anywhere with raising the money. I, my, I came up with another idea, which was the New York Society for American Baseball Research chapter has lots of members. So I decided, okay, we'll raise it through them. And I was going to have them make a tax-deductible contribution and see if we could get 100, 150 people to kick in. And we'll give them a tour of the archives of Greenwood Cemetery and some kind of goodie and a lot of baseball stuff in there. I worked for weeks on this uh, email I was going to send. There's more than 500 people on the list. And I finally one night hit the send button. And 10 seconds later, Keith Olbermann sends me an email. Well, how much do you want? <laughs> he, he paid for the whole thing. But I worked way too hard on the um, email. <laughs> Again, the book is called How Baseball Happened. It's our slides exposed, the true story revealed. And now, Tom, you said before we began, you, you're originally from North Carolina. So, Len, do you have any barbecue uh, things you want to talk to uh, Thomas about? Oh, well, tell us about your area, where you're from, is very specific. As of, and you mentioned it has a very specific taste. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's different sort of basic ingredients in barbecue sauces. Right. And like Western North Carolina is completely different from Eastern North Carolina. And most of them are tomato-based, not all. There's mustard-based ones. There's, most of them are sweet. Now, the Eastern North Carolina one is actually descended from the way Native Americans cooked game in a pit in the ground. You build a wood fire in a hole, and you roast the animal whole, and they flavored it with hot pepper and vinegar. And it, over hours and hours, and it becomes sort of velvety and spicy and vinegary. It's not sweet at all. And it's served in North Carolina typically on a... Yeah sandwich uh, roll with uh, coleslaw it kind of adds a little sweetness and it's most people try it the first time and they're not that impressed but it starts to grow on you and <laughs> very addictive there's several great barbecue shrines in eastern north carolina you know wilbur's and scott's these famous places that are sort of holy sites if you're from eastern north carolina and it's not something you can really cook at home. You know, I sort of have a fake version that I do with a clay pot and a bunch of onions and vinegar and a pork shoulder, but it's not really the same. You got to, you got to go to Scott's or Wilpers if you want the real thing. Yes. You can't make that. Yeah. That's not, you're not digging a hole in the ground at home. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I recommend it. Well, so the meat, is it, then are we t is it pork? It's pork. Yeah. The, the Indians use deer, I think, but it's pork now. And, it's absolutely wonderful. And if, if you get to like it, you just don't want too much sugar in your barbecue sauce after that. It's funny. I, I heard somebody interviewed and they were talking about barbecue and their region. And the question came up, well, you know, what did you think about the other, what they started to compete. Mm -hmm. They didn't realize actually there were other barbecue styles until they started to compete until they, you know, they thought their style, they didn't realize they were different styles. You know, one of the really interesting things about food culture is you have all these places where people have something regional that's wonderful, and they, they tend to take it for granted. I used to live in New Haven, and the pizza there is, you may have heard of it, it's unbelievably great. But no one there thinks that, they think everyone's eating the same kind of pizza they are. <laughs> you know, they're, they're standing in line outside of Pepe's or Sally's and are more modern, and I, I would ask them, do you know how great your pizza is? And they go, no, it's, it's different in New York? Yeah, it is. It's not as good. You know, in, I was once in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and I got lost. I was trying to find Wilbur's. 
and Wilbur's barbecue joint. And I asked some guys on the street, where's Wilbur's restaurant? And they all said, I don't know. I never heard of it. And I, that word was too highfalutin. <laughs> and I finally went barbecue. They went, oh, yeah, it's over there. <laughs> so it, it's totally a pedestrian thing to them. And it's, it's a treasure. So what would be, if you were trying to, when you try to get that style barbecue at home, what would be the closest that you could, uh, how would you go about cooking that to get it? Okay, well, you could use a slow cooker. Okay. Uh, or I use a clay pot if you ever use one of those because you can cook it at a very high temperature and it keeps right. it moist. But yeah. throw in a lot of onions. I throw in a few dried chipotles. And then you throw in vinegar and hot pepper, like red pepper flakes. Okay. Put a pork shoulder in there and just cook it to death till it's shreddable with a fork. And you'll be about 85% there. It's not bad. So no, but you're not getting a, you're not getting a bark on it then, are you? No, there's no, um, it, it doesn't come out with any kind of sear or crispy surface. That's not what it's about. It's sort of right. braised. And the bread that you would serve it on, what would be the time? Well, down south, they don't have good bread. I hate to say, you know, it's usually something horrible. But it would be improved by putting on, on some good northern bread. <laughs> and then the coleslaw? Is, again, is it like a tangy slaw? Are you- yeah, a, a mayonnaise-based mayonnaise? one. That brings in some sweetness. I mean, I actually don't put the may- uh, coleslaw on it. I, I think it's fine just eating the barbecue, but I get why they do it. It has a little fat and a little sweetness. Is that the mayo, though, Dukes, in, in that area? Yeah, that's very true. I was fishing there last week, and I was eating some Dukes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so funny because now with the, with the Amazon and you know the Internet, you can get any kind of you know, mayo or whatever. I mean, here in New York, it's Hellman's. Right. And then I, I found out about Duke's and I had to try it, but I, I, I refused to, to go on and buy it on the internet. I had to get it. I wanted to go into the grocery store and just see it on the shelf and purchase it. Well, I, I go every fall, I like a salmon, I go back to the place where I was born and I, I go down and I fish in Eastern North Carolina. And I made friends over the years with a guy who's a fish dealer. He's the guy that buys the fish from the fishermen and has an ice house. And then he sells it on to uh, the food processing plant and stuff. So I intercept the process there and get the fish right out of the water. It's fantastic. Well, over the, this is the, how the relationship has developed. I found out about 20 years ago that the guy was buying kielbasi from the food lion and he thought it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't get enough garlic down there, I guess. So my friend Tillman I live in Greenpoint, which is a Polish neighborhood. You have not had kielbasa, man. So he goes, yeah, like, what's it like? I, said, I bring him a cooler every year now <laughs> of all the different kinds. And he's so excited that I get free seafood for two weeks. It's embarrassing. We're both thinking we're coming out ahead. Win-win. <laughs> <laughs> I go down there. He goes, yeah, here's 10 pounds of shrimp. Here's three boxes of scallops. <laughs> I just feel like I'm taking advantage of him. But he said he feels that way about me. I, I think I think you may be getting, at least monetarily, you're definitely getting the, the better. Idea. It depends on how you price it. The local, the, the price the locals charge each other is quite low. Really? But yeah, with like tourist prices, I'm I'm killing, I'm killing it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I. So you guys, you guys are in New York City area. We're on Long Island. And you're both Met fans. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> well, um, hey, some of my best friends are Met fans, but. Are you happy about the new owner is what I want to know. You know what? You're doing genealogy. Could you do mine? Because I, I hope I'm somehow 
related to Steve Cohen. <laughs> well, it you know could come in handy. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the people are always asking me what I think, and I'm saying, well, you know, a lot of these owners, they're uh, I shouldn't say this if I ever hope to be employed in organized baseball, but there are a lot of them are rapacious pirates, and you know, you want your rapacious pirate to be competent. So I think you might have improved. You might have traded up here. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, he definitely has money. I, I mean, I, and from what I hear, a desire to win. So, did you hear what he said about that the Mets are analytically and technologically were a century behind? And he's going to help them catch up. That's good news. That is absolutely. I happen to know Stephen Matz. Oh, okay. Because he was a friend of my nephews. They went to high school together on the island. Uh huh. And in the minors, the Mets signed him for quite a lot of money. I can't remember how much. And then he blew his arm out. Right. His elbow. So when I saw him at a barbecue, barbecue, he was, he was uh, rehabbing. He was rehabbing. This is another story I probably shouldn't tell. He was rehabbing his Tommy John. I know people who do that, you know, who are who, uh, trainers who, who do, who are actually hired by major league teams to do that. And I said, okay, what's the program? And he goes, you know, I don't really have a program. What? the Mets don't have you working with one of these top guys. And he goes, no, they just sent me. Some, they sent me some like Xerox exercises. Oh, like, what, what, what? You get from your chiropractor. Yeah. And then I'm going, and where are you doing this? And he, he's going like at the Jack LaLanne and Sataka. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> oh. You know, this is like a $50 million arm and they don't care. Oh my God. <laughs> and oh, there man. are a lot of major league teams like that. Not all of them, but, it's oh, just wow. weird. Yes. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> a lot of Mets fans want to want to uh, get rid of Steve Matt. I still have hopes for Steve Matt. I, th- I think it's, you can't get rid of him right now. I just I just oh, hope I think his arm back. is fine. His arm is fine. He's a good kid. I, I, there must be some way to turn him around. I mean, I see the stuff is there. Yeah. I yeah, don't I, get it. Yeah, he. I think he had a bad season. I th- well, this season. Can't he, he got to discount this? There's so many things going on. It was weird in so many ways. Thomas, again, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Book is fantastic. Good luck with good luck. And could you tell us where where could people buy it? Uh, I know Amazon, but if you don't want to uh, support Jeff Bezos, uh, where can people get it? I would recommend you go to your local bookstore if that's possible where you live. Okay, Um, it's certainly everywhere online that sells books, but you can get it from. It's in bookstores all over the place, and go out and buy it. It's. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. As you can see, the book oh, designer is was a did a beautiful. great job, Jerry Kelly. The cover is beautiful. How baseball happened, the true story revealed, outrageous lies exposed. We have so many people that love baseball history. You cannot. This is a book you must read. You love you baseball. Have, history. And you love do, history. Any, do you have any social media? Yeah, um, I have a website. Which, if you let me mention it, it's howbaseballhappened.com, and that's all one word, lowercase. Howbaseballhappened.com. And that'll give you links and information about the book and a few excerpts. Excellent. Um, really, the book, as I was just saying, it's, it's yes, baseball history. But like you said, it's, it's interwoven with history in general. I mean, the Civil War is, you know, it's amazing to me when we think that we're so far away in time from these things. Then you look at it like 1860 Civil War, next you know, in 1947, Jackie Robinson, you talk, that's, it's only 87 years, you know, in, in space in that time. And 
and so much happened. When you look at when baseball, it's I just find the, the, the connections. I'm fascinated by all of this. It really, and it's not huge spaces of time. It, it really, yeah, you know, things, we, baseball fans tend to be sort of traditionalists and we don't realize how fast things change. And baseball has been changing for 150 years very quickly. And Probably. yeah, and it's, I, a friend of mine was having me look at his manuscript and he had a sentence that was something like, uh, it was a year of, great change in baseball <laughs> every year, every year. I mean, even what's going on now, there's some precedence for if you're, if you have a long enough view, we've had 60 game seasons. We've had 20 game seasons. We've had seven inning games. It's really changes the constant. There was yeah. actually one thing in the book. I, I remember seeing something about they were, they were considering seven inning games in, in here, right? It was voted on and it was narrow victory for nine. In 1857, they almost went with... Actually, initially, they were going to go for seven. You know, I'm enough of a traditionalist that that bugs me. But, you know, two, on the doubleheader, I can see it. You know, it happens in amateur ball, and two nine-inning games can get pretty long. I, I'm the kind of guy that never leaves before the last pitch ever. But, you know, I remember going to a Yankees-Tigers doubleheader and the first game went 18 innings. You know, that was a rough night. <laughs> the only thing about the... the uh, not to get into these new rules... But the only thing about these seven inning games is stats wise. Like if the if a pitcher pitches a seven inning no hitter, it's not considered a no hitter. Well, you know that's a good point. Uh, you know what's funny though, like sometimes the, the innovation, in a way, results in a game that's more like an old fashioned game. I mean, the DH is a great example because you know I grew up in the '60s watching you know Gibson and Drysdale and all these people, and the great part was you know how's he going to get through the lineup four times or even five times. And it was just fascinating. And then because of the way the National League was playing baseball more recently, you know, uh, Bob Gibson is out of the game in the sixth inning because he's down one nothing, And the DH lets them stay in the game longer. So it was more like an old-fashioned game, even though it was a new rule. Right. And what I liked about the some of the seven-inning games this season was you got that feeling again. You know, Garrett Cole can go, can go the whole game. And there's that sense of you better score it's the fifth inning you <laughs> score because <laughs> he's, he's throwing a hundred and he's got it together. And that, that sort of sense of urgency that you used to get in yeah. some ways I liked it. Well, thank you again, Tom. We, we greatly appreciate it. You were terrific. So yeah. thank- well, hey, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And thanks for all the lovely things you said about my book. <laughs> we mean every, every word. Thank you, Tom. Jeff. I'm almost disappointed that there won't be a part three. Well, you know what? People should go get that book, How Baseball Happened. Excellent book. It is an excellent book. And I happen to know that we've gotten feedback from some of our listeners, and they have actually gone and purchased that book. Excellent. Yeah. I'm thrilled that they're going to do that, which makes me think that we're doing our part to help the Pandemic Baseball Club. And for anyone that is not familiar with them or wants to buy their books or some of their merchandise, they should go to the Baseball Pandemic Book Club, baseballpandemicbookclub.com. In addition to that, we have some fantastic companies that we like to talk about. One is baseballbbq.com for grilling tools and accessories that are not your typical tools and accessories. Baseball 
related tools and accessories. They mix the two. You've got spatulas with baseball handles. You've got shirts and hats and go to baseballbbq.com. And the other one, of course, is fifthandcherry.com for incredibly beautiful cutting boards. You're going to wonder what you ever did without these because they are beautiful. And I, I keep mine out on my kitchen counter and we use it all the time. And it's great. So all right. Jeff, I've spoken my piece. All right. And now let's get back to part two with Paulie G. And we get off here where he's talking about his favorite Yankee. Paulie, who's your favorite Yankee of all time then? Uh, Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle. But, you know, I had a lot of, I just, uh, there's so many Yankees that I love. I love Thurman Munson. But mm-hmm. not, my favorite Yankee year was a year that they lost the World Series. A year that they got swept in the World Series. And I was there. For both of those games, okay, it was 1976. 76, the Reds. Thurman Munson, my favorite Yankee that year, hands down, was Mickey Rivers. Mickey Rivers made that team that year. Absolutely loved him. I have, if you, you got to come to my place when, when they let people inside again. Oh, yeah. I, you know, in the back of my slice shop, it's all Yankee stuff from the 60s and 70s. I have all of my yearbooks, the yearbooks that I had. Back then, they're in the frames. I shouldn't tell people this. They may steal it, right? <laughs> but that's what I have up there. Uh, I have all of these ball plays up there. And I got the great opportunity recently. And I forgot that I even had this. I was at the game when Chambliss hit that home run in seven. Really? I was. I went to all the games there. And I bought the newspaper the next day. And I saved the paper. I even forgot I had it. And I was going through stuff when we moved back to Brooklyn, and I found it, right? And I have a friend, he's a great Yankee fan. He has a pizzeria in East Williamsburg called Carmine's. And he has a friend that sets up an autograph thing in one of the suites up there in the stadium. And he, he, they brought in a whole bunch of Yankees to sign. All of my favorite Yankees from that team, not all of them, but uh, Willie Randolph was there. Greg Nettles was there. Roy White. Well, oh. oh, he's a great guy. No, everybody wanted autographs. They were online the whole time for, for Goose Gossage because he's the only Hall of Famer there, right? I got to talk to Roy White for 15 minutes. That's great. Just sitting, I felt bad. I said, nobody wants to talk to this guy or anything. Great, great. You know what he told me? I said, what's your, because I, I asked him, I said, what was your favorite Yankee moment? And he, boom, like that, he said, the moment I walked into the Yankee clubhouse. For the wow. So that is. I made another long story I'm going to make short here. I brought the paper with me, uh, and, and the paper has Chris Chambliss hitting the home run, right? I got Roy White to sign it. I only got people to sign it who, who were on that team. I got Roy White to sign it, Ron Bloomberg, Greg Nettles, Willie ran up, but most importantly, Mick the Quick. You wow. know what I talked to Mick the Quick about? Guess what I talked to, about Mick? The dog track. He loved the dog track. And that's what I did. You know, on, on our episode number 42, we spoke to the pitcher – who gave up that home run to Chris Chambliss. We had Mark right. Lutell on our, our Mark yeah. yeah, that was like, it was, you, you were caught by surprise, too. It was the first pitch. I think yeah. the, but I was in a lot of big games, okay? If you don't mind hearing it. Anybody want to hear about the big games I was at? Sure. We love the game, yeah. Uh, yes. I was with, when Jackson hit the three home runs, uh-huh. three of us. It was me, my wife, and a bottle of peppermint schnapps, okay? <laughs> and we were in the back row. I was a game. I was in the front row. We had, I had front row seats for a while. I was on a Saturday plan. I had a friend on a night plan. I, I was down in the front row. 
when Joe Girardi hit that triple and ran around his bases like like a rocket, and they they won for the first time in 15 years or whatever it was. Uh, I was there when Justice hit that home run against Seattle. I just, just so many great games. But I was in the middle of baseball history. Oh, really? We, I was down in the front row that night. It was game one against the Baltimore Orioles in 96. Came up on the D train. I used to park the car over near the 59th Street station. You would take the D train express. It was four stops. We were at the stadium in no time. I said, do that. So me and my friend Fred, bigger Yankee fan than me, we get on the subway and, and who, oh, we get online for a token. And who's online in front of us? But Regis Philbin. So we follow them. We get on. He gets on the train. He starts talking to these kids, trying to see what they got. Come on, give me something. Give me a little routine. And it, it was wild. And we got to the game. And so we're down front. And before the game starts, here comes Rich Garcia wandering over our way. And I said, I want to talk to him. I got to ask, what can I ask? I want to ask an intelligent question, right? I want, you know, I said, so I said, how do you like this assignment? He says, I hate it. I hate it. And he really didn't get into explanation too much, but he basically said, it's kind of, you know, you can fall asleep out there on, because he was the right field umpire. Right. So after that whole mess with, with May, what was the kid's name? Jeffrey Mayer. Jeffrey Mayer, that whole mess. Right. He comes walking back over to me. He talks to me after that whole thing. <laughs> I told you I was going to get in trouble out here. <laughs> I'll never forget that. So. You know, my favorite game at Yankee Stadium ever, August 4th, when Tom Seaver pitched number 300 game. I was at that one. It was, it was uh, Bill Zuto Day, holy cow. <laughs> Tom Seaver Day. Tom Seaver Day. I was blown away. You know, I'd forgotten what baseball was like. It's really sad. Yeah, I'm, you know, I don't want to sound old, but it's ridiculous. How many complete games did he pitch? Oh, he had a, a bunch. I think he had like 200. 200 or something. Yeah. yeah. Did he pitch 200 complete games? Is that possible? No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. it is possible because there are pitchers that have had much more than that. Yeah. Believe it or not, that's a. There are there are pitchers now that 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 will never win as many games. Oh, yeah, right. As, oh, as and, back, and, back to, and back to favorite games. I was at game one in 2000, by the way. That was, uh, that was a great game. Paul O'Neill's greatest at bat right there. So. Oh, please. <laughs> run, <laughs> team, or run. Right, that's all I keep remembering. <laughs> back before Steinbrenner and the Yankees and, 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 and made Met fans' heads explode, I was a Met fan, too. I was a Willie Mays night, 1973. So I was a Met fan, too. I used to... I used to sit at home uh, in September 1969, you know, get high in Prospect Park with my friends and, and, and come home and watch the Mets clinch the pennant. So there you go. Those are the days. <laughs> now, Paula, you have in Madison Square Garden, you have a, uh, a pizza stand in the garden? We have three pizza stands in Madison Square Garden, the slice shop. You get the sections. It's been so friggin' long since I've been there. Okay. <laughs> but uh, one on, you know, sixth level and eighth level and and up up in where the blues used to be, there's a little there's a little one too. Yeah. That, that was really, that was uh, that was amazing that we got to do that. And have you tried to put any uh, pizza places in either? I don't know how it works in Yankee Stadium. Uh, uh, I know City Fido has. I don't try to do stuff like that. I don't. I don't try to get promotions. Uh, you sure. guys, I, you know, when I saw baseball and barbecue, I said I got to get on your show, and I'm going to talk talk them into this. Okay, 
But normally I won't look for promotion. You know, I won't reach out and say, I want to, you know, I, I let mm -hmm. it come to me. The garden came to me. I was very fortunate. Okay. I, but I would love my dream. My dream. One of my dreams is to have my pizza served in Yankee Stadium. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Well, hopefully one day. You must be a basketball fan also because I see you have a pizza named Mo Cheeks. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm a casual basketball fan. I'm so glad you asked me about that. You know, the pie has guanciale in it. Guanciale is pig cheek, right? So I like to find clever names. You can see from my menu, we come up with some clever names, right? And I came up, you know, I loved Mo Cheeks. What I loved about him, even when he was with the Sixers, not even when he was with the Knicks, right? Is that he was a man's man. He, he was a gentleman. Okay, he wasn't a trash talker. As far as I know, he wasn't a trash talker. And he just, he was the kind of guy that, that, that you'd want to hang around with. It's just, you know, no bullshit, okay? And I love the guy because of that. You know, uh, I, I felt that Doc Rivers was the same way. Right. right. So when I had to come up with a name, I you know, that would be a great name. Mo Cheeks. There you go. And that's what I did. And one night, you know, people would ask me about it. How, why'd you come up with that name, you know? So one night, somebody, excuse me, he asked me, guy was sitting alone. How did you come up with that name? Why'd you come up with that name? And I explained, just like I explained to you guys, right? And I'm looking at the guy, uh, sort of light-skinned black guy. I said, why? What is it, your father or something? And he says, yeah, he's my father. <laughs> he says, yeah, I came here because my friends at work told me that, that you got a pie named after my father. So he came in, he came back with, he came back with his sister. They've come in a number of times. They're really nice people. You want to see something? You want to get choked up? Go on YouTube and find his Hall of Fame induction speech. He was so choked up that mm -hmm. Dr. J had to come over and put his arms around him. His mother was in the audience. It, it, it just, it was a beautiful moment. You got to go for it. You got to seek that out. Definitely look that up. Definitely. Now, Paulie, speaking of the Yankees or anyone baseball related, anytime you're in the restaurant, any Yankees, any uh, Mets come in unexpectedly? Well, Brandon Nimmo, I'm never there when he comes in. I'm never there. Mm. Never there. So. But no, no Yankees. I've had other people come in. That, you know, I don't, I don't like to talk about it. But I've had some fun moments there with people who've come in. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention, you know, I'll mention this. You know, they film a lot around the corner from us. A lot of Showtime stuff. And they filmed billions around the corner. And one night, Paul Giamatti came in. Yeah, quietly in the corner. I went over. I, I didn't acknowledge. I knew who he was. I just made sure everything was okay. I, I, I brought him over some limoncello. Okay, he, he and whoever he was eating with. And, and that was it. And, and, and a couple of weeks later, there he is again, prominently sitting with like four people now this time. So I just go up to him and I said, so let me ask you something. I didn't say I knew who he was or anything. I said, just, you're back so soon. You know, was it the pizza or is it the name of the place? And he laughed. He said, definitely the name of the place. <laughs> and you know, his father was the uh, former professional, the yeah, uh, commissioner of baseball. Commissioner, Bart Giamatti, right? That's right. Um, that's, that's very good. Oh, wow. Well, Paulie, <laughs> that was a favorite moment of mine. I don't have any other... Uh, unfortunately, no other baseball connections there that I could think of right now. So, Corey, two more questions uh, before we let you go. I, I see your logo. Oh, you got a oh, Okay. You got a limit? How's that work? You, you know, know we, we make our guests too comfortable, Jeff. They never want to leave. I love it, but <laughs> we get no sleep. Nobody warned you about this? <laughs> Very difficult to get me off these things. 
<laughs> uh, your logo, it's a sun and a, and a couple of lemons. How'd you come up with that? And what does that represent? Oh, I know the lemons, but what about the sun? Well, okay. I, I, I painted this oven at home, a really ugly green. I said, what the heck did I do? I got to repaint this. I got to do something. And I said, I want to give it a nice Italian feel, but I didn't want to build a cliche of an oven and make it red, white, and green, right? So I said, let me give it a Mediterranean feel. And white and cobalt blue and yellow is really Mediterranean kind of. You see those colors in the Naples region. So I, um, I decided to do that, but I was inspired. And I put the lemons on because I always serve limoncello at my pizza tastings, homemade limoncello. And lemons also, they make every Lemon juice makes everything better, okay? Just like butter. All right. And, but I was truly inspired by the logo from a ski resort in, uh, in Idaho, Sun Valley. They had a logo that said Sun Valley in cobalt blue with the yellow sun behind it. And that's where that came from. And I put that on the oven. And then when I designed the logo for the sign, I put the sun in the middle and the cobalt blue and the lemons on the sign. So there you go. There you go. And if people want to uh, go, come, come to see you, where, where's your restaurant located? Uh, I have two of them. The wood-fired spot is in, in, in Greenpoint on 60 Greenpoint Avenue. And our slice shop is around the corner, 110 Franklin Street. Okay. And we have um, Paulie G's Logan Square in Chicago. Paulie G. Uh, see, you're wrapping it up even though you said we were going to go out for a <laughs> Yes, that wrap-up question. So, people want to see you. Where do you go? We don't want to forget. We don't uh, want to forget. Paulie G's Hamden, which is a great neighborhood in Baltimore. Okay. And Paulie G's Short North, which is a great area in Columbus, Ohio, okay? Uh, and, and, and in Chicago, soon to be in Wicker Park, which is another great neighborhood, okay? And uh, you can find me on Instagram, at Paulie G, P-A-U-L-I-E-G-E-E, and at Paulie G Slice Shop with an underscore in between. And that's it. What? <laughs> I want to keep going. I really What's do. Up? Let's keep going. <laughs> I'm a, I just want to make sure we got all the plugs in, you know? Yes, we got all the plugs. We have guests that actually... We, I don't, not many, but a couple of guests, you know, that you kind of want to get off. But Paulie, you are definitely not one of them. We, we, we could, you know, you could fill in as a co-host sometime. I mean, we. You didn't even hear barbecue. Now, now you want to hear? You want to hear? I know nothing about barbecue. You know what I used to think was great barbecue? Now, now, please understand. Okay. Go ahead. Anybody who likes this place, and if anybody from the establishment is listening, I still you have a sore spot in my heart. Sonny's Barbecue. You know about Sonny's Barbecue? No. Oh my God! You got a you got a a show called Baseball and Barbecue. <laughs> Here we go. Here just, we go. Chain in the south. They're a chain in the southeast. Uh, they're all around They're in Florida. A lot in Florida. They expanded into Georgia, and just you know, they had a nice little salad bar. It, it, it's good stuff. It's it's all right. You know what I loved about it? The garlic bread. They had the best garlic bread for a bar. <laughs> there you go. But other than that, I don't know. You know, I, I went to I went to Lockhart. I went to Smitty's. I love barbecue sauce. I went to Smitty's that doesn't have sauce. And here's the yeah. other thing. Guess what I have on two of my pizzas? Barbecue sauce. So- I got. What do you br- have? I'm sorry. I got brisket ends from Hometown Barbecue. Ah, there you okay. go. Now that, yeah. That, got, actually, got, that was one of my questions. The hometown brisket pie with uh, really? pickle red onions. Uh, their sticky barbecue sauce. Sticky is their sweet sauce, you know, on, on a white pie. Uh, our own pickle red onions. And then I got another one that's the sleeper, okay? Brisket 5-0 with 
which is just the, the white pie, their brisket ends, and pickled pineapple. Now, pineapple was one of my prohibited peas, but so was pickles. So the fact that it's a double negative allowed me to put it on the pizza. Makes sense. <laughs> really good, it, I, I really love that pie. I really do, the, the brisket 5 out. So if we've actually to this and they come in, check that out. If you don't like it, you can have any other pie. On we, we, actually, anytime you come in and you don't like a pie, you can have any other pie. On. We've been to uh, Morgan's Barbecue, which is in uh, Brooklyn, near the Barclay Center. So uh, uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, that we we actually went there with not to name drop, but uh, Big Daddy, Rich Salgado. Daddy, uh, which Big yeah. Daddy? Not the one from the the liquor stores in Florida. No football. The football actually, uh, his his uh, brother is a coach uh, on the Buffalo Bills. Is he the defensive coordinator, Jeff? He's uh, one of the coaches on the Bills. Oh, yeah. he's a barbecue guy. Is that? Well, no, actually, he's he's on the he does NFL uh, shows. He's involved with the NFL. I know that. Yeah, so you got to go there. All right. Yeah, and he and and he took us there. It was very oh, I nice. Know about I have to check it out. By the way, speaking of hometown barbecue. They open up a place around the corner. You like burgers? Sure. Oh, yeah. They open up. My favorite burger in New York is at the Mineta Tavern. I don't know if you know about that. It's the Black Label Burger at the mm-hmm. Mineta Tavern, right? Well, Billy Durney opened up a place called the Red Hook Tavern, not far from Hometown Barbecue, and they got a burger that's right there with it, right there with it. It's just unbelievable. So if you're around, check that out. Okay. Well, where have your travels taken you in your, in your uh, tour of pizza? Is it beyond New York? Well, my pizza tours have mostly been New York. I, I, made, I made a pilgrimage to the, the world capital of pizza in Old Forge, Pennsylvania. Okay. We can talk about something else now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> where else have I gone? Oh, I just had some great pizza in Atlanta. I have a friend who has a great pizzeria in Atlanta called Varisano's. A really good spot. Where else? Uh, you know, not a lot of other places for pizza. San Francisco is a great pizza town. Great pizza town. A lot of people don't realize that. I had some good pizza out in, in, in L.A. Oh, L.A. When I was there, last I had to go there to film a commercial for Google, I think. Just a little sound bite. They brought me out there. They spent thousands of dollars for me to come out because they wanted me to say something. This is the craziest thing, right? But I realized I was there. And I said, oh, my God. The World Series is tonight at my favorite baseball stadium in the whole world with a team that wears my favorite baseball uniform in the whole world. And it has nothing to do with me being from Brooklyn. But the Dodgers have the most beautiful uniform, and they are absolutely in the most beautiful stadium. So anyway, I realized – that the World Series is going on that night. I found a friend who was a Red Sox fan, right? We went to the game. And that was the Friday night game that was 18 innings. Wow. <laughs> and it's just, just because I just happened to be out there and I had a night to kill. And I got to experience that. And he was a Red Sox fan. He kept hitting me on the head whenever, you know, the Red Sox did something. And then the Dodgers came back. It was, it was great. And, and the Dodger Stadium is like the third oldest stadium. Uh, you know. that, that's scary. That really makes me... And it's beautiful. Oh, I love it. I, it. It's just so gorgeous. It really is. I love mid-century modern stuff these days. If you look behind me, you can kind of see that. But in terms of pizza, San Francisco is a great pizza town. And my favorite place in the Bay Area, there's a little place. They have one table. It's more of a takeout place. The guy's eccentric, but I love him. His name is Keith. It's a place called Amelia's in, in Berkeley. 
uh, I have another friend that has a great place there called Pizzaiolo. Great, great spot. Los Angeles, there's some, there's some good pizza too. Uh, what's the heck the name of that? Prime Pizza. Great spot for New York style pizza. Where else have I gone? Oh, I've gone to Naples for pizza. Okay. And all around that region, Rome. There's some great pizza in Rome. A guy named Gabriel Banchi makes Roman style pizza there. So, you know, I've had pizza. I have, I have friends. I have, I have a lot of pizza friends. They are in London. They make great Neapolitan-style pizzas called Pizza Pilgrims. So that's, that, those are the places I've gone for pizza. I feel like I'm forgetting something. I, I went to Greece. I didn't have pizza in Greece. That wasn't any good. Yeah, were you, what, was the, what was the Google ad that you were doing? What, I don't know. What, what did you have to know. say? They didn't tell me, first of all. And I don't think it ever got it. I don't think I made the cut. I think I'm on a cutting room floor or something. <laughs> they brought me out there. They had me sit around all day in somebody's house in Pasadena. They, they, they like, you know, they told the people to get lost and come back in a few days. They paid them lots of money. And I sat around all day. Me, it was a senior citizen kind of thing, talking with, I don't know what they were doing. Yeah, Paulie, when we were kids, it was regular and Sicilian. That was, that was the pizza. There was nothing else. I mean, you had toppings, of course, your standard not toppings. Not many. Right. Not many. You know, there was your sausage, your pepperoni, your mushroom. You know, whatever, onion, what? okay. Somehow, over the years now, pizza has changed with all the, the different toppings. But when I go to a pizza place, what am I looking for? What? How do I know what slice to get in that pizza place? How do I know? Do I ask them, what's your best slice? Or Because now, do I get regular? Do I get... So I, well, suppose I tell you your best slice is something with anchovies on it, and you hate anchovies. So what good is asking them what their best slice is? You okay. know what you like to eat. You know, and, and, and maybe you could try a little. So I have a pie called the Cherry Jones. I t- if I told you this pie has dried Bing cherries on it, fresh mozzarella, and honey on it, you know, orange blossom honey, that, you know, that might not sound good to you. So maybe you wouldn't select it, but it, it is a good combination. But you got to go with what you love. That's, you know. Right, how do you like Kramer's idea of, of your homemade pizza? <laughs> a Seinfeld episode where uh... I never had was the coffee table book. <laughs> it was a coffee table book. It was a coffee table. Okay, that's the best idea he ever had. But what was that? What, what? your own pizza? You put this on. You put cucumbers on. He was like, no, no. no. <laughs> All right, so Paulie, what's the craziest idea you ever had for a pizza that shocked you and worked? And worked. Oh, God. Yeah, because, I mean, there's tons of things that probably don't work, but what shocked you that it worked? Well, this Cherry Jones thing is just amazing, really. The honey and the cherries. and We put prosciutto on top to get that, that contrast with the saltiness. So that, you know, I think that kind of shocked me. That was one that somebody else came up with. You know, I didn't come up with that combination myself. And I, I actually was named after a guy named uh, Adam Jones. That's where the name Cherry Jones comes from, right? Not the actress. Okay. I, at first, I, I said, that name said Cherry Jones. That sounds like an actress, right? Matter of fact, it sounds like a porn star. But, oh, my God, I don't want that. <laughs> I said, that can't be it. So I Googled it, and I found out that there's this actress that I love. She was in – I love to watch 24, and she was the president of 24. She's a great Broadway actress. I'm pretty sure she's won some Tonys, right? So that, that surprised me. I came up with a pie. I came up with the best pie name ever. The pie sucked. It was terrible. I came up with this pie. Adam Jones, again, he said, why don't you try spaghetti squash in the pie? So you have to take the squash and pull it with a fork, and it's just really hard to do, right? But on the white pie, we put spaghetti squash, 
and we squeeze lemon juice on it. So now the spaghetti west, I thought spaghetti western I could come up with, and you have lemon juice. So rather than calling it the Sergio Leone pot, does everybody know who Sergio Leone was? He's probably dead now, right? Yeah, they made spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood. So oh, okay. right, I had to right. come up with the Sergio Leone pie. I came up with the Sergio Limone pie. What isn't that a great name? Yeah. It was the most bland pizza I ever created. It was just it lasted about a week and I said, that's it, off the menu. Off the menu. What constitutes something as a pizza? I mean, just because you're putting it on around cooked bread doesn't necessarily mean it's a pizza. It's what, you know, it's whatever you want to call a pizza. Bread, you know, good gotcha. bread, good toppings. Gotcha. All right. You know, for, they made pizza for thousands of years. They found a, this, they called the oven that I built in my backyard a Pompeii oven because they found those ovens in Pompeii. I stood next to one in Pompeii, right? They, 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 didn't, they didn't have tomatoes. Tomatoes came from South America, right? So, you know, it's just good ingredients on good bread. You know, pizza probably means the floor or something, right? <laughs> right? It's one of my favorite foods. Oh, here's my best pizza. And I'm so mad. I'm so mad about this because I ran into her in, on Court Street in uh, Cobble Hill. I have a pie that was a tribute to, it was a Hanukkah pie, okay? It's for eight days and nights. I have on it, which you shouldn't have. Right? You can't have pork on a Hanukkah pie, right? But I did, right? And an anisette cream sauce. It was similar to another pie I had called Anise and a Nephew with that's fennel on it. Yada, 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 right? So I actually created this thing. We took a, fennel, a slice of a fennel bulb and made it look like a menorah, and we took little cranberries and we made it look like the lights on the, on the menorah, right? <laughs> so I, I came, I, oh, I can't believe it. I, I saw her. I, we came up with the name. It was a brilliant name, Menorah Jones. I just love that name. I ran into her, and I didn't think to stop her and say, hey, I got a pie on my menu named after you. I missed opportunity. And to this day, one of the things you wish you could go back and change in your life, yes. stopping her and telling her that's one of those things. Now, I could have had another name for the pie, but the pie had cream sauce on it, so I didn't think that calling it the, the, the Hanukkah Lewinsky was a good idea. <laughs> That's very good. Very good, yes. <laughs> the Hanukkah I, Lewinsky. I have to tell you guys something from the bottom of my heart. I, I, I'm, I'm not complaining too much about Yankee ownership, but I am really envious of you guys right now because you got a guy, and, and, and uh, Tim Kirchner was talking about it. You have a guy that's truly a Met fan he, he, didn't, he said it. he didn't buy the team for money. My money's over there. My money's there. That's how I make money. I, I'm doing this to make that team better. And, 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 and it brings tears to my eyes. It, it's choking me up thinking about that. You guys, you should really feel good about this, that you have a man yeah. who knows baseball enough, you know, and knows uh, uh, and also knows that he should stay out of something. Right. That you're really forced. You guys are going to have a great team. It's not going to take long. And, and I'm going to hate you guys very soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better oh, go yeah. in and get pizza before he... Uh, yeah, exactly. Before he we, hates us. We no, 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 what's his name? A Double Day's uh, brother talked to us about doing something. There because they have a brewery in, uh, in City Field. Did, and, you know, but in any case, that didn't happen. They're gone now. So. Yeah, I know they have... I think they had two boots in City Field last, last time I, went, I was there. 
I don't know. They have, they have a pizza of Emily, who has a great burger, by the way. You got to try the 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 uh, the Emmy squared burger when you go. It is a really good. If you like a messy, sloppy sauce kind of burger, you should try that. It's really okay. good. Okay. But what was the deal with that? Oh, your owner. I mean, that's that's just wonderful. It really is. It really well, is. you know, you had that too. You had for many years. You had George Steinbrenner. You know. Yeah, but you know, the stuff. There's a lot of stuff that Steinbrenner did that you just had to cringe about. Right. Oh, he, was, he was a great owner in a lot of ways, but you guys are not going to have to deal with any of that kind of crazy. We had 40 years of suffering. Yeah, but we, we, had, we, had, we had five, you know, five terms of Billy Martin. You're not going to have 40 years of suffering. Let, let me tell you something, okay? Here's suffering, okay? A, a, a Yankee fan rooting for the Red Sox and having to watch them go down in flames, okay? <laughs> That's suffering. I stood behind my couch that night, Casey. Pacey. Who lost that game? Who lost that game for the Red Sox? Which one? In 86? Yeah. Game six. Game of Bruce Hurst. No, no it wasn't Bruce Hurst. It was uh, Al Nipper. No. The catcher lost it. Whatever. The catcher. Name. Oh, okay. Because he was calling us. He, the, I met a, a diehard Red Sox fan that, that, that pointed that out. That was true. But yeah, I, 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 I rooted for the Red Sox. I, you know, being, being a Yankee fan with Met fans around in, in, in that era, it's like you always had to hear about how the Yankees, you know, bought the pennant. I got tired of hearing that. Well, I hear you, but in this town, most of the time, Met fans are definitely second-class citizens. So Why do you say that? Because that, that's how we had ownership that treated the team like it was a small market team. We, had, we were involved with the Madoff scandal. We were t- I remember the big purchase when, when I was a kid. Instead of a free agent, we got Diamond Vision at the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You guys have some really bad luck with, well, I don't know if it's bad luck, but some of the people that, that you guys signed, I mean, George Foster, I mean, you know, uh, Mo Vaughn, Jason, Jason Bay, Bay, yeah. Bobby Bonilla. Bobby Bonilla, yeah. Vince Coleman. <laughs> the list goes on and on. We know. <laughs> You got to grow it. You got to grow a team. That's the only way to do it. That's how, like, I I get my pizza makers. I start them as dishwashers and salad makers. I I, I find people that want to be pizza makers and grow them. You know, you got to do that with ball players too. I mean, you look at the Yankee teams that were great. You know, in the nineties, that was that team grew up together, right? Right. Now the Yankee teams, my favorites in the seventies. That was all. You know, they talk about Steinbrenner buying the team. It was really Gabe Paul trading for people like, you know, Willie Vicky Randolph, Roa, even, even Sparky Lyle. I think, I think Gabe Paul was there with Sparky Lyle. I'm not sure. On the Red Sox. Oh, Willie Randolph, right? They traded away Doc Medich. Chambliss. Chambliss was, you know, from Cleveland. And, Cleveland. But, you know, what are you going to do? But you guys, you guys aim for some really good years ahead. I really, I'm happy for you. I can't believe I'm saying this. But <laughs> it's a great thing. <laughs> Right, Paulie, we appreciate it very much. Thanks very much for letting us go into extra innings. Thank you very much, Paulie. Check out Paulie G's, everybody. Have a walk-off, all right? (laughs) Okay. Hey, Paulie G, thank you very much. That was a very fun interview. Len, what do you think? So, Jeff, during the last couple weeks, we've had a number of people tell us how much they've enjoyed Paulie G's interview with us, how funny they thought he was. I think we make our guests feel too comfortable. We're going to have to cut that out. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. He was fantastic. And he actually, we could have done a third part with Paulie G. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Yes. 
definitely uh, have to have so, him back on. Yes, and you know, as you know, this is part of a series of of how baseball actually evolved. And so our next part of the series is going to be with a man named Jeff Cornhouse, whose nickname is Pine Tart, and he plays by the 1864-65 rules. And that was pretty interesting as well. So stay tuned for that. Wow, 1864-1865 rules. That's going to be very, very interesting to hear about. Again, we cannot thank enough Tom Gilbert, Paulie G. But more importantly, if you're listening to this, we thank you because we could not do this without you. Well, I mean, uh, technically we could do this without them, but... <laughs> Why would we I, want to? Right, exactly. What, what, what would be the point? So we're going to end the show with our two friends, the poet and the musician, of course, Shel Krakowski and Dave Dresser, with their incredible song, Baseball Always Brings You Home. Jeff, looking forward to the next time that we meet. Okay, have a good one. See you next Bye. time. Still.